Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to the second episode of the first series of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. This week, we look at driving business performance with people data. With 69% of large organizations now having a people analytics team, interest in the topic has never been higher. But how do you actually drive business performance with people data? That's the topic of this week's show. Our guest today is Edward Houghton, Head of Research and Thought Leadership at the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, or the CIPD, where he has been the lead author on a number of landmark studies on analytics, measurement, metrics, and impact evaluation. In today's podcast, we discuss the importance of people analytics to business leaders, investors, workers, and HR. We give examples of where people analytics has helped drive business performance. We also look at the most important topic, probably in people analytics, that of employee trust and ethics. And then we look at what the CIPD is doing, the initiatives it is taking to help improve data literacy amongst HR professionals. And then finally, we also look ahead and ponder what the role of HR will be in 2025. This episode is a must listen for anyone who works in a people analytics role, or HR professionals who want to learn more about the topic, and indeed anyone interested in the topic of evidence-based management. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for this series of five episodes of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Support is brought to you by CultureAmp. CultureAmp is the world's largest people and culture platform that helps companies take action to improve employee engagement, retention and performance. CultureAmp is a culture-first certified B Corporation used by over 2,100 customers including brands such as Airbnb, Kind Snacks, Autotrader, Salesforce, Slack, and McDonald's. Start developing a deep understanding of your employees' experience today by visiting cultureamp.com. That's cultureamp.com. Welcome to the Digital HR Leader Show, Ed. It's great to have you here. Can you give, give listeners a quick introduction to you and your role at the CIPD and, and maybe also a little bit about your vision of, of HR? Sure. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. So I'm Ed Houghton. I lead the CIPD's Research and Thought Leadership Programme. So what we do at the CIPD is we look at what's happening in the future of the world of work and we look at the practices in the world of HR that we think are going to have the greatest impact. And in research, we look at the evidence of what works within HR. And my job in particular is to develop an agenda around the future of work and the future of HR, and then work with experts across HR practice, senior leadership, C-suite, and academics to work out what practices are the most effective in organisations today. Great. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And last year, I'm going to talk about people analytics, not purely about people analytics. We're going to talk a little bit about it because it's something we're obviously both passionate about. Um, so you produced a great report last year. Um, People analytics driving business performance through people data. Um, one of the best reports I think that was published last year about about the topic. Can you kind of give listeners who haven't read it, and you really should read it, they can download it for free. I know to, to, to do it. What are some of the main highlights and, and findings that you you found in the research? So the survey really came from this idea of wanting to look at HR practice from the perspective of HR professionals, but also to see from senior finance managers and non-finance, non-HR professionals, their perspectives on people data. 
How is people data being used in organizations today? What kind of impact is it having or not having in organizations? And to develop an agenda of how HR can think about people analytics as a core component of HR practice. Mm. So we surveyed HR practitioners globally and finance practitioners globally. We got around a thousand HR practitioners and a thousand finance professionals to respond to our survey. It's a good balance. Though. Really nice balance. We know in particular that HR functions struggle in sharing and uh, developing data-driven outcomes with finance. So we wanted to look very closely at the different perspectives mm. on the outcomes that we were looking for. And in the work, one of the areas that we were really keen to explore around skills and confidence is whether or not HR practitioners are thinking in terms of maturity, of how confident and capable they are, and whether or not they're sharing the outcomes of their analytics with their stakeholders. And confidence and capability are something that we've recognised over time at the CIPD have been a real barrier to progress when we talk about HR data. So we surveyed these professionals and we found some really interesting results, particularly around confidence. So confidence globally tends to be pretty high when it comes to very basic analytics, looking at mean and mode and calculating averages and uh, developing really simple reports. And globally, confidence tends to be around 75% of HR practitioners are happy and confident in doing that. But as you move towards the more sophisticated analytics of doing predictive modeling or developing structural equations and modeling using structural equation modeling, it becomes much, much different. And in particular, in the UK, the confidence level drops significantly. So only a fifth of those HR practitioners we surveyed were confident and capable to do that level of advanced analytics. Now, globally, the average at that level was around 40%. So we noticed a real difference, in particular, in the UK context. And we also recognised that other regions, in particular the US, are leading the way when it comes to people analytics in practice. So that's one of the first kind of major findings from that work. It shows us that actually there's more to be done within the UK context around building confidence and capability. The second finding that I think is really quite interesting for the UK is how we think about the capability in teams to use data analytics insights. So we obviously talk about the push and pull of analytics, of developing a good receiving system that's able to receive analytics in mm. outputs and then use it in decision making. And we found that there are three behaviours in effective teams around using data and insights. The first is this idea that you have a team which is confident communicating analytics and is able to talk about the value of analytics. So proactive managers are using analytics and being confident in the way they talk about it. So that's one behavior that we found is significant within teams who are effective at using analytics. The second quite interesting finding from that is that if you have line managers who are asking for data, then you're more likely to have a team which is effective at delivering insights. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense, but it's useful to isolate these behaviors because these are the behaviors that we want HR practitioners to build into yep. these, these teams that are confident and capable. And the third is this idea of connecting the dots. So how do you have a team that develops analytics output outcomes? Is that you develop an understanding that analytics doesn't happen in isolation, that actually you need to connect the dots between business outcomes and make sure that all stakeholders are learning from the way that you use your analytics in practice. So that has allowed us to really think about what kind of behaviours do we need HR practitioners to be building in their organisations. And we started to talk a lot more about this idea of analytics culture. There's a culture in organisations where analytics is done well, 
that we need to foster and develop. And it's all about confidence and capability, and it's all about empowering line managers to see and know the data is there for them to use in their decision making. That's great. I mean, it was. I must admit, I did find the regional variation quite interesting. Yes. Kind of expected it with the US. Uh, just thinking about the UK here, um, but it was quite interesting to see like places like the Middle East, where I know that analytics is less advanced than it is in the UK. There yeah. was a higher confidence level there. Yeah. The same, I think, in in Singapore as well. So I don't know whether it's just that we're slightly less confident in the UK at the moment for maybe other reasons <laughs> outside people analytics. But <laughs> yeah, we won't mention the B word. No, no, <laughs> let's not mention the B word. <laughs> well, interestingly, two weeks ago, I was out in Dubai and I asked the question, you know, for Dubai HR leaders, these, these uh, data points tell me that there's something happening in the, in, the, in the UAE where we were at that time that's different to what we see in the UK. And for me on the outside looking in, I'm curious about why this seems to have happened. What's the phenomenon behind this difference in confidence and capability? And their view was similar to yours. From their knowledge of what happens in their organizations, there are particular barriers in using analytics that they're finding very hard to overcome. And one of those is around capability and skills. But another is around connecting the dots between analytics within the function and other types of business analytics. And their response was actually... You may have levels of confidence around using other forms of data, and that they feel is quite strong in the region. But actually, when it comes to people analytics, doing specific insight um, activity around people data, they found quite difficult. So in their interpretation of the results, they think that there is good confidence around using data and the numerical skills associated with using data effectively. But they also question this idea of whether or not the region is is effective at using people data. To me, it's more questions that we need to answer through yeah. research. And for the CIPD, we're really keen to kind of um, lift the lid on what's happening in the UAE and in, in uh, the Middle East, but also in Singapore as well, where we work very closely with organizations around uh, evidence-based practice and using data and decision-making. And again, there, very high levels of educational attainment, very capable and confident business graduates moving into the profession, which is very strong. And that might be one of the reasons we have fairly good confidence uh, in Singapore in particular, but there are still some questions to ask of those organizations in region because it does seem fairly high. Mm. And for the UK, I think we are perhaps getting ourselves down a little bit on our confidence and capability, but we know at the CIPD that there's a lot that we can do and will be doing to help HR professionals to better use their data. We've known for a long time that this is a big challenge, particularly when it comes to technologies in the workplace and technologies that HR have access to. And now there's some evidence for us to use to say, well, actually, to enable effective HR, we have to be using data effectively and confidence and capability are core to that. So you touched on there that to actually do good HR, we do need people data and analytics. I think for some of our listeners who maybe aren't as deep in, in the space as, as you and me, you know, why is people data and analytics so important and be, becoming more important as well? So in the profession now, we talk about evidence-based practice. And in the last three years of CIPD, we've been looking very closely at how we can incorporate the idea of evidence-based practice into the HR profession and to encourage HR practitioners to start to use more different forms of evidence in their decision-making. Partly it comes from a criticism or a critique of HR in being too gut-based. And that's often a critique I hear when I talk to non-HR practitioners. 
particularly from finance profession, is the evidence used to define decisions. Sometimes it doesn't come to them very quickly, and there's a reliance on judgment based on gut and instinct. And that, to me, is a, it's a bit of a red flag. It says, well, actually, there, is, there are many forms of evidence that HR practitioners use every single day. And partly it's about educating the business that this is, what's this is what happens in HR practice. But secondly, and I think importantly, um, there's been a real growth in technology application in organisations, in HR functions, which means we do have more data that we can use to be more evidence-based. And in the School of Evidence-Based Practice, this idea of being evidence-based is all about incorporating four forms of evidence. One is evidence from scientific research, and mm. research from academics who look at the theories and the, um, the phenomenon of work around practices that work in organisations, and in particular, how those practices influence outcomes. So that's evidence in the form of scientific literature. Data analytics around workforce data is another form of evidence. It's the second form of evidence. can come in different forms of data, but it's data that's captured on systems within the organization. The third form of data is this idea of insights from the stakeholders who are being most impacted by decisions that we make. So in HR, that would be the perspectives of workers or employees. That's another form, very important form of evidence that we use in decision making. And finally is the one that we see HR professionals almost forgetting sometimes, but it's a very important form of evidence. It's their professional expertise, it's what they've seen previously and what they've used in their decision making historically. What kind of things they've seen through their practice, particularly senior HR professionals, will draw a lot on their expertise and a lot from what they've seen historically to inform their decisions. These four forms of evidence we use every single day as humans to make decisions. And our view is that to be better HR practitioners, to be more focused on outcomes, and to be more likely to create good outcomes through our decisions, we have to use these four forms of evidence in combination. And so data and analytics is one of those forms of evidence that until most recently has been maybe less invested in by mm. HR functions, but with more technologies on the market, more push from senior stakeholders internally and externally, so CEOs, the C-suite, and now investors, there's more of a push on HR practitioners and HR functions to think about the data they're collecting and then to think about how they report it to their stakeholders and then creating this idea of being evidence-based using that data. So focusing very much on how they provide insights to the business and how they show that they are being evidence-based through their decision-making. Because if we know, if we are evidence-based in our decision-making, and if we show our working, the business is far more responsive to our recommendations, and is far more likely to take on the recommendations that we provide as HR practitioners. We talked a lot about business outcomes, um, and you know, you explained that people analytics is one of the four types of evidence-based decision-making that HR professionals can use. I think, you know, in terms of bringing it light to some of the listeners, you know, can you think of a couple of really good examples from your experience of, of how organisations have actually done that? Sure. So one example that I like to talk about a lot is the work of Greg Aitken at RBS, who took a very methodical research-based approach to looking at engagement in the branch network at RBS. And they were very clear in wanting to understand the link between engagement in their branch network of those bank branches serving customers, what are their enablers of good customer service and good performance outcomes? And through their work in the branches, by working with their key stakeholders in the branches, as well as collecting live data on engagement of employees 
and customer service data from those different branches, they were able to locate the best performing managers who they could then parachute in to into parts of the organization where engagement was low. Now, to me, that's a very, um, it's a very simple methodology in terms of putting it on paper and the data probably already exists or existed in their data sets to be able to do this kind of work. So it wasn't as if they were having to redefine a lot of the measures that they were collecting. So mm. it's already there. They've already got access to it. It's all about what I like about the case study is it's all about thinking of the question. It's all about what was the question that they wanted to answer. In my view, the question is the most important part of what we do in analytics. And the RBS case study, I think, really highlights that if you have a good question, such as what are the, the forms of engagement that are leading to good performance in our branches, you can start to then really look closely at what's working in the organization. Too often, I see... Um, HR practitioners getting stuck because they haven't defined a, a, a good question. They haven't defined a set of measures that they want to measure against that question. And they've always gone too quickly into doing the analysis instead yeah. of stepping back and working with their stakeholders to work out actually what is the question you're trying to answer. So RBS, uh, that case is uh, public and it's available. Greg often talks about it at conferences. It's a really wonderful description of how you can use a simple measure like engagement to look at something that's very much a business priority to RBS, which is customer service. The second case study I'm really interested at the moment on is the use of data and analytics to external stakeholders. So the um, so SSE, the uh, utilities provider, have developed probably one of the first human capital reports of the value of their workforce and the investment they make in their workforce using analytics of the workforce that they've developed over time. And they worked with a number of consultancies to develop uh, an external-facing report, essentially showing the human capital asset value of their business. And it was a really neat move because it, it demonstrated that in terms of sustainability of organizations, particularly to investors who are interested in more ethical investment or invested in, in organizations over the long term, they were able to conceptualize what the value of their workforce was and to demonstrate how their investments through skill development and training and education was leading to higher human capital value over the long term. And that was all based on data that they had in their organization sitting within their people data system. And what, what I think that demonstrates is we talk about analytics within the function all the time, but how we use it with our internal stakeholders. What I'm now seeing is those really savvy organizations are taking those points that we talk about internally and then reconsidering them from an external perspective. And for us at the CIPD, the investment community is one incredibly powerful and very interested community in human capital data, in workforce data. And so they're one community who's really asking questions around workforce analytics. And the second is obviously around the regulators, and in particular in highly regulated organisations or industries. Um, the question of how do you treat your workforce, how do you develop your workforce is becoming more and more common, you know, particularly in the banking industry. And so there are also more tensions and pressures on organisations to demonstrate what they do around managing their workforce and reporting that to the regulators. And so organisations like the Banking Standards Board and the Financial Reporting Council in the UK are really 
looking very closely at human capital data within people analytics and using that to inform their work in terms of regulation pressure or regulatory pressure, but also then how they steward organisations to think more effectively about the data that they're using. So there are all sorts of different stakeholders now asking questions of organisations, which organisations are having to use people data to respond to. Now maybe 15, 20 years ago, this may not have been the case, or we were relying, we were overly relying on a measure like engagement to respond to some of these issues. Yeah. But now, because people data systems are more comprehensive, they're more sophisticated, you're bringing in data from all sorts of different parts of the business, you can create a very holistic view of how you're managing your workforce. And as we've seen in the most recent corporate governance scandals, there are questions now about how organisations are treating their people. And so this is only going to rise to the rise on the agenda of management and treatment of the workforce. And so you know, gender pay gap reporting showed us last year it's possible, it may not be the best measure ever, it may not be the most appropriate use of some of that data that we see the press doing, but at least what it showed us is that data about the workforce should be reported externally if, it's, if there's a case for it, and it can be done. Organisations of 250 plus employees are now reporting this data and they're mandated to in the UK. And so it shows that people data in its most basic form can be used by external stakeholders to think about what's going on in organisations today. So whereas historically we may have not seen people data as being the most strategically important uh, concept in organisations or to boards, now it really has risen up the agenda and things like gender pay gap reporting have really got boards thinking about what kind of data they collect and how they share it with their external stakeholders. There's definitely a, definitely a shift going on, isn't there? Um, and I think the first example in particular you gave around RBS is very interesting because, as you said, it's the importance of getting the business question right. Mm -hmm. Much easier to engage the business if, you've, if you're focusing on something that's important to them. So, and, and clearly branch performance is important. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. yeah but this is the thing. It's, it's all about, and this is why I think evidence-based practice is very useful because it, it um, encourages you to reposition your perspective on the issue. And it means, because you're thinking about those different forms of evidence, that you engage with your business stakeholder. You talk to your line managers about what issue they're seeing. You go to the line, you go to employees and say, what's your view on this issue? You go to the, the, the vast amount of literature there is on issues in the workplace, say it is engagement, whether it's mental health and well-being, whether it's health and safety, whether it's performance management. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole world of academic research that's already mm. been done on these very... Um, important business issues. And so evidence-based practice allows you to bring all of this thinking into one place and I think critically it enables you to ask the question of so what? What does this mean to the business and how can HR do analytics with the business for the business? And that's a very different perspective to where I think analytics was five, ten years ago which was about analytics for HR yeah. and it's, it's a very different perspective I think we take on analytics now. So we touched on obviously focusing on business challenge in hand being very important. Um, and I know in, in the report you did last year and some of the other research that you've done at the CIPD, you know, there's this whole thing around skills and capabilities in HR. So competence, I think, was one of the things that yes. you, you saw and capability. What are some of the other areas that HR struggles with, with people analytics and, and evidence-based decision making? Yes, so um, last year we launched our new profession map. And in our new profession map, we have really established at the core this idea of being evidence-based and around it we've established some new behaviours and new knowledge that we're encouraging HR practitioners to build and develop. 
And many of these behaviors are relevant to their practice outside of analytics, but they're particularly core to analytics practice. So in particular, it's this idea of being structured in your thinking, being critical, so critically appraising data and insights, but it's also about communicating that data and the insights from your analysis to your stakeholders. So there's, there's a set of behaviors that we've defined in our new profession map, which are really about connecting the dots of data analytics to the outcomes of the business. The second is the core knowledge of the profession. In, in particular, we need to improve numerical skills and capabilities, so basic statistics. That's part of our new maturity scale within our profession map. And then secondly, it's about data science skills. So how can we encourage data science skills to either be developed within the HR profession or to be sourced in from other functions within the organization? Let's go skills and capabilities around using different types of statistical modeling tools and software. And again, about defining research questions and thinking about research methods are new capabilities or skills that we want to see the profession developing. And then we've also, because of the growth in analytics, because it's such a, an important area to the business, we've now defined an analytics specialism. So alongside uh, the capabilities we want all HR practitioners to, develop, practitioners to develop, we also have a new specialism that we're really encouraging HR practitioners who do have a numerical background, who are interested in being more evidence-based, who are able to bring together different models and systems and to think systemically about issues in the organization to become analytics specialists who do develop data science capability and who are thinking about modeling and thinking about business issues from a modeling perspective. So that's a new specialism we've also created within the new profession map. So I think what, what will happen over time is that these new uh, behaviors, knowledge space, knowledge base and new um, specialisms will allow us to develop these capabilities across the board within the profession. So numerical skills to improve, but then also we're developing in the profession skills and capability that are specialized towards analytics. And I think that specialist perspective on analytics is what's missing. Yeah. It's something that we haven't seen really develop within the profession. And I've noticed a kind of a trend for people buying in these kind of skills and capabilities, which is important and it can work, but we also need to build the basic kind of skills and capabilities around analytics. And that I think is perhaps what's been missing for some time and which may be why analytics has taken some time to really, you know, re reach takeoff. It's kind of been getting there, but I think now, because we've started talking about those basic capabilities and more advanced specialisms, there's a great opportunity now for HR to make the most of analytics and to be developing itself around how to use data and insights more effectively. Yeah, I think I think you struck on it there. It's it's yes, we we obviously need to develop the specialisms for people analytics practitioners themselves. Mm. But I guess there's this whole thing, and I think you, you you touched on it really, the whole data literacy of the the rest of HR, mm. and I'm thinking particularly here HR business partners engaging with their business on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. There's that role I see uh, between the people analytics team and the HR business partner. I think the people analytics team need to better understand the role of the HR business partner yep. in their day-to-day -day challenges. And I think a lot of my my colleagues in people analytics sometimes forget about that. They always see it from their side that the HR business partner needs to be a bit more data literate, which I think we probably agree. Yeah. But there's almost this kind of role, this translation role um, for the HR business partner, principally perhaps, to actually be able to take some of the findings of the people analytics and actually communicate that in a way 
that people will actually in the yes. business will actually make decisions on. Is that something that you're, you're yeah? Looking at so, um, so what we're going to be investigating this year is exactly that. It's the the the, the structure of the function which structures of the function in terms of capabilities and skills, but also technologies, are more likely to develop this positive analytics culture that we talked about earlier. And in my view, it is. It's, it's partly about business partners being enabled to critically appraise the situation, develop that, that problem, that business problem. So um, instead of responding, perhaps, which I see happen quite a lot, with a dashboard of data and saying, Here's the dashboard of data. Now let's look for what the problem is. Mm. Having a very positive and encouraging conversation with the business partner to say, well, actually, it's about you working with the business to define between you what the issue is. And I know many business partners do that uh, through their practice already, but being more, more methodical about it will yeah. enable more effective practice. The second, I think, is definitely that bridging role that you've talked about there, because that bridging role is all about the translation, and it's also about conceptualizing what is a business problem from a people perspective. Yeah. Partly that can be done by the VP, but actually I think it's more likely to be done in that bridging role, because then in the center of ex expertise that you have around analytics, you can have all those skills and capabilities already in place to do the analysis of the raw data and to, to do the modeling, but you need that translation piece between them. And I see it so many times when I'm at conference, when I'm speaking to practitioners and in our own research, that that's where it falls down. It's that translation. People get what the business problem is, but then translating it into what data would they need to collect and analyze, and then also looking at all of the uh, potential um, errors that could occur in the analysis. That kind of expertise needs to be developed in that bridging role because, you know, there's a, there's a challenge around having 100% perfect data. It's not going to happen. No. And too often, we see the businesses expecting that in the, mm. the data analysis that they receive. And the business partner needs to be very savvy in talking about the potential in analytics, but also some of the errors in analytics that they need to be made aware of if they're to make a more effective decision. And I think sometimes we rely on analytics as being the, the solution to everything. But actually, analytics is used in part with all of these other tools mm. that HR practitioners have. And by doing that, by incorporating HR analytics as part of the, 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 the toolkit that HR leaders have, we can talk about all of the effectiveness around HR practice, including what happens in people analytics. At the moment, it's almost used too much as a silver bullet to solve problems. And then when it doesn't solve problems, people then think of an, another initiative to invest in but we need to build the capability and demonstrate what works and what can work in the future if we're to see that investment to continue. My fear is that we see significant investment up front as a, as a pet project or as a pilot project, but then organisations don't follow through and embed those skills and capabilities and technologies into practice. Yeah. And the, my fear is that becomes almost faddish because you see or in investment peaking and troughing. And what we need to see is continued investment in analytics practice, both from the side of the business, but also from the side of practitioners investing in their own skills and capabilities through training and development. So I think it's a, there are a very interesting phase, I think, where we could see analytics really becoming a mainstream if we see organisations really get behind it and invest in it over the long term. Yeah, I think you touched on it. Creating the culture, yeah. the data-driven culture, is, is absolutely essential if you want to create long-term sustainability so the one the one takeaway for or one of the many takeaways from that is that the, this misnomer that the CIPD isn't doing anything around the curriculum around analytics is wrong 
Oh, completely wrong. We see it as core to what we see the future of HR looking like, and we see it core to what we see practitioners doing in the future. So the profession to be professional has to be evidence-based. To be a respected professional, we have to be evidence-based practitioners. And central to that is this idea of using data and analytics alongside these other forms of evidence. We cannot be evidence-based practitioners if we don't use data and analytics. Yeah. And so we've recognized it. It's at the core of what we do as HR practitioners. And then in addition to that, because of that, we're investing heavily in training and development for HR practitioners. We develop workshops and conferences. We have online courses and webinars. We've got communities of HR practitioners coalescing around data and analytics as what they are doing in their practice. So we see it as a huge space of growth for the profession and it's an emergent very exciting space for practitioners to invest their time in and i often talk to um, master's students coming into the profession and i say to them if you want to be in one of the fastest moving most exciting parts of the profession go into analytics because that's where you'll get a lot of opportunity it's a very lucrative part of the profession you get a lot of opportunity to grow and develop yourself to work internationally and more and more you're being called on by the most senior parts mm. of the business to think about the impact of HR. And so for me, it's very important we encourage practitioners to see analytics as a very exciting space to be moving into. And the CIPD is 100% behind that. We see that as critical for what the future of HR looks like. So one of the key focus areas when I talk to HR leaders about people analytics is the subject of trust and ethics. What sort of guidance would you offer in, in that area? So the CIPD, we are bound by our professional standards and our ethical standards of practice. So to be a professional, you have to adhere to a set of core standards of practice and principles of what you do as an HR practitioner. And they're fundamental to what we do as HR practitioners. And our members, through joining our organisation, they sign up to apply these principles through, the, through their work. And it's part of what we see as the respect of the profession. And if the business can trust us to make good decisions, then we're able to deliver on those decisions. And you know, HR practitioners can go home at night knowing they make the right decisions. Now, analytics, people analytics, poses lots of very tough questions to HR practitioners, in particular about the boundaries and lines, where the line lies in terms of using data in an appropriate way. And so in terms of what we can do and think about to look at people analytics, it's so important that we apply our principles in decision making, that we're evidence-based, but we're also transparent with the business about how we use people data. And for me, we should be asking the question of whether or not it's appropriate, whether or not it's something that's right to do, whether or not we're working with the business to do the right thing, and if we're not, if we can't answer those questions, it's the job of the HR practitioner to really stand up and say this isn't appropriate. And we've seen from recent corporate governance scandals mm. that there are real issues in organisations having a wealth of data to now use, but not thinking whether or not it's appropriate to use that data in decision making. And the best test for me is go and talk to an employee, share with them the data that you collect about them in the workplace, and talk to them about how you intend to use that data. And employees, if we talk to them and we're open with them and we're transparent with them, they can help us to work out where the line that is, that is appropriate actually lies. And it's for us as HR practitioners to define that with the business and to stand firm 
when it comes to the potential for crossing those lines. And HR practitioners see this every day in their practice. There are opportunities in the business that the business will want to follow and pursue, but they may not be appropriate. And HR has always been seen as the conscience of the organization. It's very, very well known to non-HR people that you go to HR when you've got a sticky situation, that you want to understand the most effective way through it, that also protects employees. Protecting employees is key, and that's why we have ethical standards, and that's why it's so important we use them in our practice, and in particular when we're using people data. Yeah, I always say if you can't articulate the benefit to employees, then you probably shouldn't do that particular project. Exactly, exactly. If there's if there's no clear outcome for an employee, if an employee is going to turn around to you and go, wait a minute, what's, what do I get out of this? Then it's probably likely that you shouldn't be doing that. Mm. And there's a level of common sense to that. You are an employee. Of Would course. you like that data to be collected about you? Would you like that data to be used in the decision that you're potentially going to be using it for? And if, if it doesn't make sense to you, or if it doesn't make sense to your colleagues or employees, then it's likely that it's not the right thing to do. If you want help in doing that, the CIPD has a wealth of resources around making ethical decisions, and we support individuals to navigate those difficult issues in their practice. So we're very well geared to supporting individuals, and people analytics is one of those areas where we do see potential risks occurring, as well as all the opportunities we've talked about today, there are obvious risks that we need to be very clear about. I mean, clear about them can help us to mitigate against them in the future. Great. Well, I know with, with the advent of new, te new technology coming all the time and emerging data sources, ethics will continue to be a top three uh, talking point, I think, in, in, the, in the people analytics space, but also for HR generally. So moving on to our final question is the one we ask all our guests on the show. And, it is, and again, it's asking you to peer into your crystal ball a little bit. What do you think the role of HR will be around to, in 2025? Yeah, so I, I love this question. Um, <laughs> I often think about, I hope, in 2025 that we have seen people analytics become an established core of practice, that it's the norm for HR functions to be doing people analytics effectively, and that the function of HR is seen to be using data well. It's respected, it's trusted, and it's able to use data effectively. To me, that's that's the kind of objective of what our new professional map looks at, is creating the system in 2025 that enables us to talk about the effectiveness of HR towards using data. In terms of the function, the function could look very different, you know, even by 2025. We've seen the impact of new technologies really radically changing in some industries, the concept of work, the relationship employees have with their workplace. Mm. So I imagine HR as a function will look very different in different organizations. We have to think really uh, clearly about what kind of structure we expect HR to have. You know, will it be formal, will it be informal? Will it be devolved to the line? Do we expect it to still be a, a function in of itself? You know, all of these questions about the future of the function we need to start to explore. And we've at the CIPD done a bit of thinking about what we want the future to look like. And we see the future as being HR as part of this business ecosystem, serving all of the different stakeholders, as well as employees, but serving all of these stakeholders I've talked about earlier, such as investors and regulators, and being a critical part of what a board is thinking about, you know, being top of the agenda, how human capital has been invested in and developed, how people issues are surfacing to the top of what organizations are thinking about. Ideally, we won't have these corporate governance scandals 
occurring around the workforce. They will still occur, that's life, but in the future we hope that those issues are less frequent mm. and that when they do occur, organizations are very quick to remedy them and that we are comfortable in the practices that are in those organizations to prevent them happening in the future. So for me, the HR function in the future is more strategic, it's more aligned to the business, but it still focuses on employee outcomes. It's still there for employees to enable them to be more effective, and it's data-driven and evidence-based. And if we can be evidence-based really to that level by 2025, I think the profession will be a very, in a very strong position. Ed, thank you very much for joining the Digital HR Leader Show. Last thing to say to listeners, how can people stay in touch with you? So you can follow me on eHowton, uh, CIPD on Twitter, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. And I'm often blogging on the CIPD's blog pages as well. Or speaking at a conference near you. Often at a conference in the UK, here, there and everywhere. So very happy to talk to anybody who's excited to talk about HR analytics. Great. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on iTunes and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make this podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest news on the future of HR and you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this week, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Didier Elzinger, founder and CEO at CultureAmp, on how to create a culture-first organisation. See you next time.